The dictator, Santa Ana, had covered Mexican arms with no glory in Texas. Now he added disgrace by placing his own safety before the honor of his country. He bargained with Houston, ordering the other Mexican columns to retire below the Rio Bravo and signing a convention by which he agreed to commit the supreme government to recognize Texan independence. The victory at the San Jacinto was particularly decisive because the other generals lacked initiative and also the whole Mexican army confronted with a burnt out country was in logistical difficulty. Santa Ana had not prepared for an extended campaign. Some parts of his army had started to retreat even before Santa Ana's defeat. All of it arrived ragged and hungry south of the Rio Bravo. Once he had squeezed all the advantage he could from Santa Ana, Houston sent him home by way of Washington. Disgraced, he retired to his hacienda at Jalapa. His agreements with Houston meant nothing because the conservative Congress at the Capitol immediately repudiated them, asserting continued Mexican sovereignty over Texas. However, the ruling conservatives were too fragmented and too involved in local power struggles to reassert Mexican sovereignty in the only practical way, by dispatching new armies. Houston's army of a thousand men melted away as the colonist militia returned to their farms, but the victory at the San Jacinto was allowed to stand. Texas remained independent not because the United States protected it for 10 years, but because Mexicans of this era did not truly believe in an imperial destiny above the Rio Bravo and had no effective leadership. A struggling little enclave of 30,000 immigrants separated Texas from Mexico because Mexico was still a sprawling territory that contained 7 million inhabitants without a developed sense of nationhood. A unified nation under a powerful leadership could have avenged San Jacinto within months. Here, every Mexican patriot began to eat the bitter bread of national doubt and humiliation, and the urge to find excuses in North American plots and myth of overwhelming Nordic numbers was irresistible. Mexico had failed as an empire, and the first failure prevented Mexico from effectively challenging the United States' role upon the continent. Although Mexico was still building toward nationhood, the failure was damaging to pride and created a national trauma that would not die. And that is from the great... Texan historian T.R. Fahrenbach's Fire and Blood, One Volume History of Mexico. I'm Josh Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I'm here with Joshua Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Melissa. And I know we have a lot of material to cover today, but I really want to start with something from that passage that you just read. And that is that one of the reasons that Texas has been able to remain independent was because of Mexico's lack of unity, mm -hmm. uh, their lack of effective leadership. And this is a quote, no developed sense of nationhood. Right. So this week on Thursday, Texas is celebrating its 187th anniversary anniversary of independence. We sure are. Uh, but I want to bring something up, and that is, what about Mexico? Yeah. All of this time later, what does Mexican nationhood or nationalism look like? Yeah, yeah. U ultimately, uh, something to be decided uh, by Mexicans, uh, obviously. And, you know, national identity is, is always uh, a conversation within a community. Uh, and that's true as much for Texans as it is for Mexicans. Fehrenbach uh, really kind of put its finger on, on the pulse of at least one strand of Mexican nationalism when he talked about 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Texas defeat, the need to create this mythos of inevitable American superiority and kind of this, you know, he terms it in, in kind of, you know, racial ethnic terms, this Nordic, he calls it. Uh, I don't think Farabach uses that anywhere else, but uh, supposedly that's kind of this kind of the Mexican take. You can actually see this in modern Mexico today. Uh, you know, if anybody goes and visits uh, one of two spots in Mexico City today, there's either the uh, Museo de los Intervenciones, de las Intervenciones, um, uh, uh, which is at the the old Churubusco convent, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of chronicles the, the the history of foreign interventions in Mexico. Or if you go to the the National History Museum, which is now you know it's it's in Chapultepec Castle, it's very easy to find the persistence of kind of this mythos of what I'll term kind of Mexican state victimhood at the hands of of other powers. Uh, last time I was at Chapultepec, uh, which was uh, not, not, not terribly long ago, it was um, uh, summer of 2022, uh, I went up there and they actually had some new um, uh, exhibits uh, there. They've actually got this Texan flag that they took from Texas revolutionaries during the, uh, the I, I believe it was um, from an Alamo unit. And mm -hmm. so you can so you can see they've got the flag on display. So as a Texan, uh, I have to admit, I briefly considered breaking the glass and taking it back. Uh, I probably would have gotten about 10 feet uh, before yeah, that happened. Not far. But no, no, yeah. not far. But, 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 but they have it. And, you know, in fairness to them, uh, they did win it. Uh, but uh, but when when you read the descriptions of of these periods of history, the Texas Revolution and the U.S.-Mexican War of 1846 to 1848 in particular, you see this narrative come forth. And on the latter count, this is almost verbatim. But the way in which um, uh, the text explains it to museum goers, and keep in mind this is as close to like an official narrative as you get in Mexico, is that it was always uh, I won't attempt the Spanish, but it was always an unequal contest because the United States had the best armies uh, in the world and the best military in the world in 1846, uh, which is in, in candor absolutely preposterous. Uh, the United States did not have the best army in 1846. Uh, in fact, it had a very unready military, although you know we accomplished prodigious things in the course of the Mexican right. campaign. Um, uh, but at the same time, if you were to enter into, uh, say, the beginning of 1846 and try to assess the relative military capacities of Mexico versus the United States, I think a fair assessment uh, would have been that Mexico obviously had some tremendous political issues. Texas was not the only region of Mexico to try and break away uh, during the during the, the the decade, you know, basically following the first empire. So you've got late 1820s, early 1830s. Um, uh, uh, you had, you know, the Yucatan, which ended up in kind of the 70-year caste war. You had Zacatecas. Mm -hmm. You had the Republic of the Rio Grande, which is kind of the old Nuevo Santander settlement, and Texas itself. Uh, and I'm probably leaving out one or two uh, in that. But there was this period of spinning apart uh, that had everything to do with Mexican politics and much, much less to do with foreign intervention. But in all this, uh, you would have to look at the Mexican military establishment at the beginning of 1846 and say that Mexico actually had a reasonably credible military establishment. It was a military establishment that had defeated at least a couple of European powers, depending on how you wanted to you know, count it. Um, uh, I don't know if you, you term the outcome of the pastry war. Um, uh, and it was a military establishment, by the way, that in decades to come, would end up defeating uh, the, the, the military efforts of the French Empire uh, as well. So, so not at all a non-credible force. And this idea that, that, uh, that the United States simply was able to overwhelm Mexico at the end of tremendous supply lines. Um, you look at the Battle of Buena Vista, uh, for example, which Americans remember as an American victory. Uh, in Mexico, uh, and I, I believe it's called, 
I'm going to get this wrong. I believe it's it's known as uh, La Batalla de Angostura uh, in Mexico. Um, but in Mexico, it's remembered as a Mexican victory. Uh, and the reason is, is that the Americans were effectively defeated on the field. And then Santa Ana, with his kind of characteristic strategic wisdom, elected to leave uh, without completing the destruction of Zachary Taylor's army, which he probably could have achieved at that point. So in no fashion, this is what I'm getting at, was, was there any sense in which um, like the fighting quality and the valor and the um, the endurance of of the Mexican military uh, really really inferior to what the United States had. I mentioned the convent at Churubusco, um, uh, which itself was the site of a battle between invading American forces and defending Mexicans uh, during the Mexico City campaign. Churubusco is is famous, uh, and, and I'm trying to recall who the Mexican general was. I want to say Nicolas Bravo, but uh, I have to double check that. Any podcast listeners correct me on this. But let's say it was General Bravo because this is a great quote. Um, when the Americans, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they fight, they can't take the convent, which is being defended by the Mexicans. And then the Mexicans essentially sue for, um, uh, sue for parley and uh, uh, kind of to American surprise. And so the American commander uh, says, uh, tells the Mexicans, says, well, first you must surrender your ammunition. And the Mexican general which we're going to say for the sake of argument was General Bravo, replies, well, if we had ammunition, we wouldn't be having this conversation because they were determined to resist to the end. And that is a quality sort of, you know, to to expand our lens to yeah. current day Mexico. That's a quality you see throughout Mexican history. Terrific endurance, absolute, um, you know, your real patriotic integrity to kind of get to your question of, of, of Mexican nationhood that is almost always ill-served by the elites in charge who are, uh, proved themselves time and again uh, unworthy of the nation that they lead. So to get back to your original question, what does Mexican nationalism look like? There are many strands of it, uh, and we can talk about that. Um, uh, you know, there's, there, there's different traditions of Mexican, j just as there are in, in American nationalism and, and, and to a lesser extent in Texan nationalism. But one of the things that, that, that we, you know, if we ask ourselves as Mexico a nation, uh, you know, in, in 2023, we have to say unquestionably yes. Um, and I would argue, broadly speaking, that, you know, could you say it post-independence in the 1820s? Probably. Mm -hmm. You absolutely could say it by the time Benito Juarez kicks out the French. 100% you could say Mexico as a nation. Now, Mexico as a nation is a, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a nation with, with, with levels, right? So, yeah. you, know, you know, Mexico has a tremendous indigenous population, it's got a tremendous European population. Um, uh, the heterogeneity of Mexico is, is shocking, I think, to those who uh, have never been there, who don't fully understand it. You know this firsthand uh, in Bolivia. It's 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 a very very similar situation. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, you know, so 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 Mexico is always going to have these cross currents. You know, for my money, uh, and this is not uh, this will expose me as kind of your average Netflix watcher. Uh, but for my money, one of the best expositions of of sort of the class structure of Mexican society is going to be Cuarón's uh, Roma, which came out in what year was it? Two thousand eighteen. I, I think so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So within within the past five years or so, it's an outstanding film. If you've got Netflix, uh, I have no relationship with Netflix, so uh, you know I, I get nothing from this. But uh, you should you should take the time to watch Roma. It's a great piece of art, but it's also a very good um, uh, kind of illumination of how class works in Mexico and how there really is still 500 years after the conquest right. a stark division between. The Europeos, you know, the Europeans, and you know, los indígenas, uh, and and the two are not the same. Uh, and uh, and so, if there's any kind of fracture, I would say in Mexican nationhood, 
it's really along those lines. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but that does not mean there is no Mexico. Quite the opposite. Yeah, it absolutely is. Absolutely. And I actually do want to go back in a little bit Please. to some of the many parallels that we do have between the current presidency uh, in, in Mexico of Andres Manuel López Obrador and what's been happening in Bolivia for Absolutely. until 2019, 14 years. And, and I do want to go back to that. But one of the reasons that I asked you about Mexican nationhood is because right now there's all this talk about you know, the inner workings of Mexico now. And recently we were just talking about this article that came out last week. And I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. I know we were just talking about this, but it's Joan Grillo's article. Yes. Uh, so if any of our, if we're wrong, if any of our listeners can correct us, we have not been able to figure it out. Joan um, Grillo, yeah. But he is a security researcher and uh, he published this article on Mexico and whether it is a narco state. Yeah. And before I ask you, do you think that Mexico is a narco state? I really want to tie it to current events and to something that happened last week. So on Tuesday, we finally got a conviction in this Genaro Garcia Luna case. Yes, we did. Which is absolutely, well, it's got two components, right? Because part of it is absolutely nuts um, that the equivalent of like the head of the FBI and also a cabinet level position was actually working with the cartels that he promised to help destroy. So part of that is nuts. But the second component is it's actually not that shocking because it's something that we've seen so many times in Mexico and it goes right to the core to what we work on here. And that's saying that the Mexican government and the Mexican drug cartels have a partnership. And unfortunately, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So given that background, do you think that the current Mexico is a narco state? And I actually do have the actual definition if you want it, but I don't think that you need it. Actually, I think for the benefit of the listeners, tell us the definition. uh... So the definition by Oxford reference describes a narco state as a nation state whose government, judiciary and military have been effectively infiltrated by drug cartels or where the illegal drug trade is covertly run by elements of the government. Yeah. Um, so, so, so by the dictionary definition, right? Or sorry, this is the Oxford dictionary. Yeah. Definition. Okay. Yep. By the, uh, I'd be interested what the Rai, um official Spanish dictionary has to say. Uh, unquestionably, uh, Mexico is a narco state. Now, now, Juan Grillo. Um, so, so you and I have spent for the benefit of the listeners, uh, the, this man's name. He's Mexico City resident. His last name is spelled G R I L L O. Yes. And so you and I have been calling him Juan, Juan Grillo uh, all week, but it yeah. turns out he's British. So uh, Juan. Uh, Grillo um, uh, d- doesn't agree with this. Um, you know, he has this very nice metaphor. He's got this narco politics substack, and he yeah. has this nice metaphor of Mexico as essentially Mexican governance being uh, a forest, and some of the trees are poison, and some of the trees are good. And so he gives the the example that um, well, the lights stay on, and the trash gets collected, and people go to work and they have lives. All of which is true. That's usually true in in classic narco states as well. You know, yeah. it was Panama. It was true in Panama in 1989. Yeah, which is definitely a narco state. Well, is... and you know, the first narco state ever is Bolivia. That's the first time the term was ever used. You know, you you, you mentioned that uh, earlier, and I hadn't heard that uh, before. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I wasn't yeah. familiar with that background at all. So I think it was 80, 81. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had this presidency of Luis Garcia Mesa. And it's funny because we talked about this. I believe we talked about this last episode, how a lot of the time history can repeat itself. And we see similar cycles. Um, but under that presidency, there was the government actively working to push cocaine to Americans. 
it was like a cocaine state. And that's the first time that you ever see the, the term narco state being used. And it's very interesting because a lot of time has passed since the 80, 81. Sure. And more recently in 2019, up until November 2019, we had yet another dictator who was Evo Morales. And under him, Bolivia was a full-blown narco state. Yeah. Um, and you see a lot of similarities with Mexico in the sense that, like, no, not to make straight up accusations or anything like that, but uh, Mexico did take Evo Morales in when he had to flee Bolivia in 2019. That's right. After this uh, failed electoral fraud. And it was and it was a Mexican Air Force aircraft. Yes. Flew to Bolivia to retrieve him. Oh, like yeah. like a celebrity. Yeah. And there's all of this. Um, there's all of these videos of him arriving and they're like cradling each other's faces. It's, it's very interesting. But one of the things that you saw in Bolivia was the Mexican president was actually the head of the coca growers, mm -hmm. um, producers, like he was very actively involved in this. Which is, which is, we should make clear for the listeners, a, like a legit above the ground organization yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. The coca yeah. growers, I, I mean... My family, my friends, coca is like a medicinal leaf. Like sure. there is absolutely no, nothing wrong with it. Um, Bolivia is very high in altitude, so a lot of the time we'll take coca leaves when we're going up to El Alto, to the capital, to La Paz. It's totally normal, but there's no money in it. It's like very right. indigenous medicinal. Where there is money in is producing it and exporting it and making it into, it into cocaine. And refining it, yeah. And the government is very much involved in that. You see so many examples similar to Mexico of them. In Mexico, you see like a lot of the collusion, a lot of the looking the other way. In Bolivia, we had so many people that were working for the government. I'm not kidding, Josh. Even the president's priest was caught with so much cocaine. Really? Like it was it was very much like an operation, a big operation. We really need to get a, a sponsorship for the podcast from the uh, the Cocaine Bear movie makers. The Cocaine Bear oh, yeah. so bad, by the way. I saw it yesterday. Oh, you saw it? Yes. Oh, good. Wow. I have a movie pass, so it was free, so I figured I might as well watch it, but I wish I hadn't. And please do not watch it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to hear that because uh, it looks amazing. It's so bad. But um, anyway... <laughs> Back to to get back on the yes. topic, one of the things that you see, one of many parallels that you see with Evo Morales and AMLO is democracy mm -hmm. and how that's happened. And so Evo, in Bolivia, our presidents before could only run for one term. You couldn't do two back to back. Right. And then there was a change where you could do two back to back. But uh, it, it began during his presidency that you could do two terms back to back. He actually ended up running a third term because he said that not being able to run again was them interfering with his human rights. It's a, it was a human rights yeah. case that he made. Yeah. 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 And then the fourth one, he illegitimately ran again. And there was all of this research that went into it. It was claimed to be fraud. Like mm -hmm. even the independent, the OAS looked into it and said that there was like a lot of irregularities. But he came out declared victory and then there was this you, there's so many protests and a lot of people this makes me really upset but they were calling it like a coup when really it was fraud right uh but anyway he ended up fleeing to mexico and all this talk again reminds me of a lot of the similarities so amlo now is trying to dismantle uh basically the national uh ine yeah ine yeah. which i think is the national electoral institute right Right. Instituto Nacional de las Elecciones. Yeah, yeah. 
And they're basically, these Mexican lawmakers are trying to pass like sweeping measures um, to basically overhaul it. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, yeah. Th- th- this this was a big um, a big topic of, of some of our, uh, in the lives of some of our Mexico City friends over the weekend who went right. to these, these marches. There have now been two mass marches in Mexico City in the past few months uh, for the defense of INE. You know, uh, we've talked about in previous podcasts that Mexico is effectively uh, like a one-party authoritarian kind of managed dictatorship, basically from the end of the Mexican Revolution, about 100 years back, until the election of 2000, when uh, when uh, kind of kind of INE arises and these independent um, mm-hmm. uh, institutions arise that actually allow Mexico. So, so everything that's gone wrong in Mexico, one of the things that went right in the past 20 years was that they actually did establish a somewhat reasonably nonpartisan, transparent national election system. Now, now, the reason that they did this was rooted in, for example, the election of 1988, which is absolutely stolen, no question about that. Then you have the election of 1994, in which um, the, the, the Dasso candidate, the pre-candidate, was actually shot in the head at a rally. Uh, and then so 2000 comes along, and uh, sort of like the moral um, and pragmatic ability of the authorities to, to rig the election was gone. So you get a PAN candidate, Vicente Fox, uh, who wins in 2000, uh, Calderon in 2006, and then, and then uh, you know, two elections hence, we have the man we have now, AMLO. The problem is, uh, is that the current Mexican president, AMLO, is a product really of the 1970s, 1980s pre-rule when he was a member of the PRI's left faction. Uh, and uh, it really has no use for these independent institutions. And so for him, it's, you know, do they enable me to win or not? It's a very direct transactional approach. And so there's not a sense of stewardship for the nation in this thought that, hey, we need to support this um, this electoral institute, which basically manages and validates Mexican elections at the national level uh, in order to, um, uh, you know, you have a sense of continuity with the nation. For him, it's independent. It's something that in his mind, now he has this legendarium in his head, that mm. Ine has participated in stealing elections from him. Um, 2006, right? 2006, and, and also in 2012. Uh, yeah. so, so he did it twice. Now, 2006 was the really serious one. So in 2006, he does come very, very close to winning the presidency. Felipe Calderon percent wins it. Yeah, like less than a percent, yeah. I believe. It was, it was, it was very close. Um, uh, but it was it was actually a well monitored election. There was obviously like post election audits that, uh, that that went on, and and, and Calderon was the winner, uh, no question about that. Uh, but AMLO, uh, you know, turned his followers out, and they occupied the center of Mexico City, and he staged basically a sham swearing in where he was sworn in. I think I think they called him like the People's President or something like that. Yeah. So th- th- there was a moment at which it became a very dangerous moment for Mexico. Now, fortunately, it passed because uh, sort of the the moment evaporated, but. He believed it. Like Amlo, Amlo still believes 1,000% that Calderon stole this election from him. And then in 2012, he runs again, doesn't win, and actually he loses by quite a bit more yeah. to, uh, to Peña Nieto. Yeah, a lot more uh, in, 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 in this one. And uh, he says the same thing, and he says, I'm going to come out with proof. And then he just doesn't, and he kind of disappears. But you know, you have a guy who ascends to the presidency in 2018, having twice in the preceding, uh, you know, decade plus, asserted that he was robbed of the election. Well, Ine presides over the elections, therefore right. Ine is is the is the mechanism that defrauds him and cheats him. And in his mind, because he is the representative of the whole people, they cheat the whole people of Mexico. So now what's happening uh, is uh, is his party, the Morena party, which is, which is you know, we've talked about it before. It's a very personalist 
party. It really exists yeah. to kind of validate him and his his ideas for Mexico. Is they're not abolishing INE, but they're defunding it, uh, basically. So you know, what can you do without yeah. funding? Not much. And so INE is really not going to be able to effectively monitor elections nationally anymore right. under this bill that has passed, you know, El Congreso, and is going to go uh, for for AMLO's signature. And AMLO's going to sign it. You know, he's yeah. he's very interested in having this happen. So these marches have happened. Um, uh, you know, it's it's very opaque to me. Uh, whether or not um, you know civic opposition to this is going to achieve anything, um, just given how the Mexican system is set up, but it's it, it's a yeah. very sad moment, and 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 it coming you know you mentioning the the conviction of Garcia Luna, it's a very interesting moment to have the destruction of Ine or the de facto destruction of Ine come uh, closely paired with the conviction of Garcia Luna, which yes. was in we was in Brooklyn, right? He was it was at the yes. federal yes. federal court in Brooklyn. Uh, uh, because because what 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 the AMLO messaging, what the Morena messaging has mm -hmm. been is that is that you know Garcia Luna obviously was Felipe Calderon's guy, you know security chief, um, and so and so what, what the argument you've seen them announce uh, announcing on um, uh, Twitter, um, which is actually a gigantic source for Mexican political comments, yeah. it's, it's, it's just as bad there as it is in the United States, uh, is that is that uh, we're 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 gutting Ine. Because Ine put into power people like Garcia Luna and Calderon, who protected him, and so there's this yeah. mythos that arises, like Felipe Calderon, whose only real sin was you know, beating beating Amlo in a fair yeah. election, uh, uh, now is presiding over this age of corruption, which the Americans have yeah. unwittingly, I think, kind of helped helped further. And uh, and so what you've seen with a lot of the comment from the Morenistas and you know kind of the the, the Obradoristas on on Twitter is uh, well the people in the street are just marching because they love Garcia Luna. The people in the street who want Dina, they really want the corruption of the Calderon era back. Now, now we can know that this is a farce, right? Because yeah. like every every metric, corruption, murder, cartel activity are all much worse under AMLO than they are under Calderon. But right. the but the but the contours of Mexican civics, which really does, uh, I don't know if it's a majority, but a substantive number of Mexicans really just hold uh, anything perceived as conservatism, conservadurismo in contempt. It's almost an epithet uh, in a lot of the discourse, um, buys it and, 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 and there's a power in it. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, we have to look at, at uh, what's happening here as uh, almost a turning point, not just because of the conviction of Garcia Luna, which is a good thing, and it's evidence, by the way, that really only the Americans can bring some yeah. accountability to this. But uh, but it's also uh, a point at which I think we're progressively seeing the mask yeah. come off of uh, the, the Moreno leadership and AMLO himself. Yeah. And I'm glad you tied that back to um, Garcia Luna's trial because we have seen like AMLO is loving it. Mm -hmm. Like he's now able to point to their administration and compare it to his and basically point to how dysfunctional Absolutely. it was. Yeah. Um, but his is not much better. No. And so it's, I think, something that I want to pick your brain on and something that I'm curious about is I also, when I initially heard about what he's doing to dismantle Ine, I thought he's butthurt. He's butthurt about the elections and mm -hmm. he... He wants to get him back in Don't a way. Don't get technical on me. Yeah, well, he's yeah, okay. he's he's acting kind of ir irrational because he's so mad that he lost those elections. Right. But then he is coming out and saying that they're inefficient and they're spending too much money mm -hmm. and there's better ways to do things. But what I can't seem to figure out is people love him. Like sure. he's doing really well, and his party, the Morena Party, like they 
are predicted to win the next presidential election as well, him, yes. his protege. And so I'm just really curious about what he's doing, why he's doing this now. Why would he would create a situation in which people are going to doubt the legitimacy of the next election when they are very predicted to win? Yeah. Like, what is the point of, of creating that? Obviously, critics are saying it's unconstitutional, um, that they're going to basically stop Mexico from ever having free elections again. Right. So why is he doing something like that that might, makes everybody question him when he's already he's already doing so well? When Morena could probably win, uh, yeah. regardless in the next in the next election. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, I, I don't think you can rule out. Um, and, and look, uh, I have no inside information on on Amlo's decision making. Uh, I don't think anybody does, but him. Um, uh, you you cannot rule out personal impulsivity when it comes to this type of a um, of a committed messianic populist leader. Mm. Uh, I have seen it written, uh, and I can't evaluate this. I don't have the basis on which to evaluate it, but it sounds credible to me. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, but I've seen it written that uh, Ine ended up getting gutted because uh, essentially the, the, the director made the mistake of um, going into public press and pushing back against an insult that the president had thrown their way. Mm. Uh, and so, and that was enough to start the wheels turning, like, oh, you're going to insult me? Well, guess what? I'm going to disestablish you. Uh, and, and it may be as simple as that. There may be no larger plan. Uh, and to your point, it's not at all clear that Morena was ever in any kind of electoral danger. Right. The opposition in Mexico is in terrible shape. Uh, you know, no yeah. question about it. I mean, there have been sort of these desultory efforts to have like this Banpri alliance um, and like the, you know, like the, the kind of the, the shambling remnants of the, the, the PRD might join it. But um, nothing will come of it. And uh, I haven't seen any evidence there really is any kind of like this vitality to a political opposition that um, has any short-term prospects of success. So why did he do it? The, the answer might be because he could. Uh, it, why, did, why did Xi Jinping crush Hong Kong? There was no need to do that, too. But he could. It sends a message. It establishes a new, uh, a new respect and paradigm of rule. And that, 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 that may have been the whole of the rationale behind it. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, not just with a lot of the things that AMLO has already done, but with this more recent development, is that one of the articles that we've been talking about all week, David Frum's new piece, yeah. it's titled, what's it titled? I love the title. That's why I want to read it. Okay. It's called Liberal Democracy in Mexico is Under Assault. Worse, the attacker is the country's own president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Those are powerful words. Yeah. And what stood out to us about this article is we wouldn't have expected someone like David Frum to come out and and say something like that. And not just that, but we're seeing a lot of the even American left starting to realize the true colors here. Right. And so I want to ask you about that. And then one other thing I would like you to touch on is... At the State of the Union address, Joe Biden's State of the Union address, he came out and he had this quote. It was something like, in the past two years, we've seen democracies around the world get stronger, not weaker. And right next door, we're seeing like the Mex Mexican democracy falling apart. Right. And so I want to ask you about that, too. Like, is he just tone deaf? Is he ignoring it? Is it our place to do something about it? Right. What do you think? Right. I mean, those are some big questions. Uh, let me let me set aside the question of President Biden's analytic competency to uh, to a second tier on this one. 
the David Frum article that you're talking about ran in the Atlantic. It's called yeah. the it's called the Autocrat Next Door, and it's actually a very good piece yeah. on on AMLO. Uh, it seems to hit a lot of the themes that we've been talking about here at the foundation for some time, which is a bit surprising uh, because yeah. you know the Atlantic uh, it's it's not it's not a bad magazine. I actually uh, actually end up paying for a subscription so I could download this particular article because I wanted to see it. Um, so we'll see if I regret that in in months to come. Uh, but the Atlantic, uh, you know, which is a storied American magazine, I think it goes back to 1854, 57, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at one time in its existence, was kind of this vital organ of American intellectual life. Uh, it's really not now. No, the, the Atlantic's sort of purpose in existence is to serve as a, a sort of a house organ for sort of this gauzy center-left consensus for people right. who think high-speed rail is going to be the next big American thing. Um, uh, so which is fine. I mean, we all love trains. Uh, but uh, but at the same time, I was I was very surprised to see any kind of original analysis in the Atlantic. But Frums, you know, got this piece and it is you know, full credit. It's a good piece. It's good analysis. Um, I don't agree with every particular on it, but the big things that David Trump gets right are are pretty big. There's an autocrat next door. Yeah. Mexican democracy is under threat. Um, uh, now we should understand some of the sources of this analysis. Uh, a lot of what drives sort of like the center left um, commentary at turning on AMLO, which again is is a very surprising development. You just didn't see this in the conversation prior to a few weeks back. Um, is this sense, this perception that 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 AMLO is a um, is a metaphorical stand-in for Donald Trump? Uh, uh, now, now AMLO has done some things that uh, have managed to kind of provoke that reflex in sort of our our, our media betters. Um, uh, notably, he was one of the last world leaders, if not the last, to congratulate Biden on his election victory. Um, uh, and so, so, so he's 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 sort of stepped into this role himself. But, but beyond that, I would say that the the comparison is, aside from aesthetics, is fairly preposterous. I mean, I mean, uh, whatever you want to say about about President Trump. Um, wasn't an autocrat, wasn't a dictator, um, uh, but AMLO is. Uh, certainly wasn't a narco uh, uh, autocrat by any sense. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, th- there there is that element of it, um, and there is also the reality uh, that uh, there is a class, there's a stratum of Mexican society that is much better connected in Washington D.C. than it is, uh, among, you know, within Mexican politics, and the the rise of Morena has accelerated that. And uh, again, these are people fond of tweeting, um, but uh, uh, you know, so you can you can see who they are uh, on uh, really on Twitter and figure out who they are. But uh, there is a social aspect to this as well. Um, you've got individuals who who have who are very well connected with what I would describe as kind of the democratic center left in the United States, and um, they've managed to get their message out, and they've managed to get it through these organs. And so you see you see David Frum, you see Ann Applebaum, you see uh, yeah. you know you know other other individuals who. Um, uh, at, at any other given time, um, uh, can be reliably counted on to kind of advance what I call like the corporatist Democrat uh, line. It's, you know, I'm not saying that as an insult, by the way. I think it's just it's accurately descriptive. Suddenly, having this opinion on Mexico that's you know actually kind of accurate, kind of based. Yeah. Um, uh, you just have to understand where it's coming from. Now, that being said. Uh, from a policy perspective, uh, you know, we ought not care what the motivation is. We should be glad that you know, welcome on board. Uh, you right. know, in the in, in the infamous words of uh, or famous words of John McClain uh, in Die Hard, uh, "Welcome to the party, pal." Uh, you know, it's pretty. It's it, it's good to see that there's this recognition. And I actually yeah. think that you know, for those of us who are conservatives, 
especially conservatives in Washington, D.C., there's a policy space opening up, a very fruitful one, to start to impose accountability on the Mexican side for a lot of the things they have gotten away with for so long. Now, all that said, because the policy space has opened up, doesn't mean we're on a verge of that from a policy perspective. I still believe that the Biden administration's number one concern with Mexico remains, uh, uh, you know, probably it's probably a tie between climate policy on one hand and migration policy that doesn't embarrass them too much on the other hand. And that's really probably it. We know that the ambassador, Ken Salazar, this has been extensively reported in the New York Times, is actually a friend of AMLO's, very close with him, appears at the Mañaneras. And so I don't think we're on the verge of an era of accountability uh, at all. But I think the fact that you can read The Atlantic of all places and see this kind of critique means that uh, you know if you want to fast forward X number of years, and seeing how events play out, you know, and God forbid there's a bad one, but if there is, you know, just as China has become a bipartisan issue, there's actually, yeah. uh, you know, a fairly broad bipartisan consensus on China now. Yeah, I can see the outline of a bipartisan consensus on Mexico, too. Uh, and uh, candidly, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because Please. Biden's policy approach to Mexico, because I want to use that and tie it back to something that happened last week, which is a vastly vastly different policy approach, I would even say okay. maybe even radical in today's standards. And that is uh, last week, Vivek Ramaswamy sure. announced his candidacy for U.S. president. Yeah. He's running as a Republican. He's a good guy. He is. Yeah, he's actually going to be here at TPS. He Did is. You know he is. Yeah, no, he is. Uh, uh, yeah. Please tell the listeners, though, about it. Yeah. Gonna do. yeah. Well, he is a multimillionaire entrepreneur. He's an author. Right. He's going to be running for president. And one of the things that he's running on is he wants to decimate Mexican cartels. Yeah. And he wants to do it in a way that we've never, I mean, I've never really heard people talking about it that way before, but he wants to use the U.S. military to basically crack down on this threat. I mean, yeah. missiles, drones, uh, troops, all of it. Right. He sees that as the most important thing that he can do. Yeah. Uh, so what do you what do you think of this approach? <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, don't threaten me with a good time. Uh, uh, by the way, we should we should note for the listeners that TPS is the annual Texas Policy Summit yes. that the Texas Pu Public Policy Foundation runs each year. Our biggest event of Our the year. Our biggest event of the year. It's running March 1st through 3rd. So if you're listening to this, it's probably too late to come. Uh, yeah. But next year, mark your calendars. Uh, and we'll be we virtual. All of our panels will be virtual. That's so people can still tune in. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So go to texaspolicy.com and sign up for that. Yeah. Thank you for, right. for mentioning that. Um, uh, you're a good steward of the organization. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Vivek... Um, uh, very interesting guy, and and uh, you know, is, is set aside any comment on his candidacy. His idea for this uh, is, uh, I'll I'll put it this way: it's 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 pushing the conversation in the right direction. Right. I want to be clear what I mean by that. Uh, I don't mean that uh, I want to get us to a point where we're bombing Mexico. That's not that's not that's actually you not know? a prudential end state. No, no, I really don't. <laughs> um, uh, that's not the prudential end state that we think is 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 fruitful here. Right. But what is the proper use of American power? What is American governance for? What is the governance of any state or nation for? These are the questions that should be asked first and foremost. And what I think um, uh, Ramaswamy is doing correctly, fruitfully, is spurring these conversations. America has a lot of commitments abroad. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of 
dissent and conversation. Yeah. And again, it, it, it's a good conversation to have, especially among conservatives, about what that commitment looks like. And you know, to put my cards on the table, I'm much more on the internationalist side. I think that a lot of my good friends, people whom I respect and admire, uh, are on the right these days. That being said, I think it is absolutely correct to be asking the question, why is it that the United States of America is so eager to defend Ukraine's borders, yeah. but so unwilling to defend the border of Texas and Mexico? Why is it that we have Americans at war killing bad guys in Syria, but they're not killing the bad guys in Sonora? Why is it that we have committed to the defense of the South Korean northern border but we have not committed to the defense of the U.S. southern border. Yeah. You know, all of this, you can, you can name almost any overseas American military commitment. And that's not to argue against those military commitments. No, we're a nation that has a role in the world. But we have to understand the purpose of governance ultimately is to ensure the perpetuation of the political community. And one of the essential features of that is self-defense. Defending our own turf. Defending our own. Yeah, defending our own. And, and, and look, if I were Mexican, I would say the same thing, except in the opposite direction, right? And so right now, we know that um, there is a robust quasi-state, quasi-military, increasingly capable cartel infrastructure linked with the state below the southern border. You don't have to go far south of the southern border. If you walk 10 feet off the bridge heading southbound in Nuevo Laredo, you will encounter the agents of the state. They might rob you. At very least, they're going to mark you out and figure out who you are. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, is it legitimate to talk about U.S. military power? Set aside whether you think it's prudential, because again, I'm not sure that it is. But is it legitimate to talk about it? Yes, one thousand percent. And I'm glad that Ramaswamy, um, uh, and he's not the only one. You know, you know, former President Trump has also raised this. Yeah. So the more candidates, the more people uh, who are seeking office, who aspire to it, or who are holding office, who talk about this, uh, I think it just pushes the conversation in exactly the direction that it needs to go. Right. Ultimately, uh, Mexicans got to solve this. Mexicans have to, to figure this out. You know, my, my dream scenario is the Mexican military, unfettered by cartel connections, being the one to bring justice and accountability and, frankly, destruction to these cartels. That's what I want to see. I want to see Savannah under arms uh, doing that. But the option for the United States to do it ought to be on the table. It Absolutely. must. Otherwise, we don't mean anything as a state or a nation. Absolutely. And I agree with you entirely that I'm really glad to see him talking about this. He's taking the conversation in a really positive direction. And I know we don't have too much time, but he said something else in one of these videos where he was discussing the, his very bold approach of using the U.S. military to protect our home. Sure. Um, he says that a lot of people, a lot of Republicans in the U.S. have been talking about things that are Quite frankly, he, he puts it as meek, mm -hmm. policies that are very meek. And one of the policies that he names is designating cartels, such as the Sinaloa cartel, sure. Nueva Generación Jalisco cartel, as uh, terrorist organizations. Right. And he says that that is just too soft and that you need to go bin Laden on them. He said that. And right. that I suppose he doesn't believe that designating them as foreign terrorist organizations, being able to freeze their assets. He doesn't think that's going to do much good. You have to fight fire with fire. Right. So what do you think about that? Because I know that this last week, uh, the attorney general of Virginia, along with 17, was it 17 other attorney generals? Something like that, yeah. They petitioned, including Texas. Yeah, including yeah. Texas. Right. They petitioned uh, President Joe Biden and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken 
to name these cartels um, as terror terrorist organizations. organizations. Right. So what do you what do you think about all this? Well, uh, I, I would I would respectfully dissent um, on the description of the proposed policy as weak. Uh, uh, you know, a foreign terror designation is quite serious. It's possible to apply it weakly, which I suppose is always the danger, uh, right. especially with the Biden administration in charge. Um, uh, but no, it's it's a reasonably strong measure. But we should understand what it is. And, and by the way, if we're going to invoke going Bin Laden, I mean Bin Laden. Uh, ended up, uh, you know, you know, shuffling off the mortal coil at the hands of a seal uh, because he was a leader of a foreign terror uh, uh, organization, and also because there was an AUMF. Uh, so it was kind of a dual, right. um, like a, in, in terms of like legal authority, is kind of a dual track thing. Uh, uh, look, a, a foreign terror designation, uh, you know, refers to specific statutory and regulatory authority. Uh, that carries with it particular context and follow-on effects. Um, uh, so you, you, you can't, uh, you can't, you know, you can't finance them. You can't be involved in support for them, and so on. And so, what it's designed to do, uh, and, and, and by the way, we should be clear that it was that like this body of law and regulation was mm -hmm. designed with effectively like the Middle East in mind, right? Like, like right. to a little, to a lesser extent, if, if it were just like like Irish Republican terrorism, uh, it probably wouldn't look the same. Um, but it's designed with that. And so this the, this idea that uh, that uh, it's it's directly um, appropriate to like a Mexican context where there's, you know, we don't have a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, fiscal or, or, or trade or commerce intercourse with with northern Syria, right, or like ISIS controlled territories. We have a ton of that immigration, you know, people finance goods with cartel controlled territories in Mexico. Right. And so what you don't want to do is you don't want to have a foreign terror designation. And by the way, the foundation is currently conducting research on this. You and I have been working on it yes, for quite some have. time. Yeah. Uh, so so cross your fingers, hopefully out soon. But one of the challenges we have to face is you don't want to uh, have a foreign terror designation for Mexican cartels that ends up accidentally rendering, you know, broad swaths of South Texas liable to prosecution because yeah. they, you know, without any Which could happen without any mens rea component, right? Without intending to, uh, they might have done business with the cartel. Uh, so, you know, I think I think uh, if there's if there's a small credit union in the Rio Grande Valley that uh, unknowingly, um, you know, has has been uh, you know holding cartel funds, uh, I would not be in favor. Of prosecuting uh, those those people, if there's no if there's no mens rea component, all of which is say you have to do it in a deliberate fashion. Now, one of the things, and I suspect I'm not going to speak for you know Ramaswamy, and obviously it's worth repeating: we're a 501c3 organization. We're not partisan. We don't have any you know we we take no position on elections or candidates. So this is a purely policy opinion. Um, but if if uh, Vivek uh, is is interested in a um, in a more muscular approach that avoids kind of the the intricacies of of FTO designations, then you know one of the ideas that we've heard on Capitol Hill from my conversations on Capitol Hill and you and I have had conversations about this yeah. is an authorization for use of military force, an AUMF. AUMF. Um, uh, and so we've seen draft uh, uh, AUMF language come up, I believe, from Representatives Crenshaw and Walsh uh, in the new House majority. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that strikes me as an idea worth exploring. Uh, now, again, the devil's in the details, you know, so we need to think about it. But am I, am I automatically opposed to it? By no means. Uh, so the virtues of an AUMF, uh, at least as I understand it is currently conceived, is that you simply sidestep the necessity of designating particular entities and those who do business with them, those who interact with them in any particular way. And you just now have an authorization for the executive branch to use military force when deemed appropriate. And in full candor, I can see um, a virtue in that. It has the virtue of simplicity. Um, but as with all things, uh, policy theory and policy execution 
uh, are not the same, and it is right. policy execution that matters most. And for that, you need the right people in charge of policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know how much time we have left, but do you have any anything else you want to mention? Any closing thoughts? Yeah, I guess uh, you know I want to I want to end where we began on this idea of of Mexican uh, nationhood. Uh, one of the interesting things that you can see in El Centro, and so the historic center of Mexico City, is actually the the grave, the final resting place of Hernan Cortez. Um, uh, if you have never read, have you ever read uh, uh, Bernal Diaz's Conquest of New Spain? I don't know. That sounds familiar. I feel like that's one of the things that they would have made me read back in I, high school. I hope you I have. I think so. I, 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 you know, you would not forget it if you had. I'll put okay. it that way. So, so, so Bernal Diaz, who's one of the conquistadors uh, who comes with uh, Cortez um, after 1519 and, and actually helps conquer uh, Tenochtitlan, which becomes Mexico City, right. ends up later in life writing this history of the conquest of New Spain. Everybody should read it, Mexican, non-Mexican. It's one of the greatest adventure stories ever um, that was set down on paper. It's rousing. It's incredible. Um, and it's a window into a heroic age that is sadly very gone. Um, but you cannot emerge from reading Bernal Diaz's account without having, whether or not you like him, I think is relevant, but you must have an admiration for the, the, the will and the courage and the canniness of Hernan Cortez, mm -hmm. who leads this. And it is Cortez who later on ends up marrying the daughter of Montezuma and actually ends up having children with her. And so he is, he is in a literal sense, the creator of the synthesis of Spanish and, um, and, and Aztec that becomes modern Mexico, that becomes this, this, mm -hmm. this synthesis nation. Uh, you would think that that foundational figure, that creator, would be, if not honored, then respected in Mexico. The reality is completely the opposite. It took me quite a while to find the grave of Hernan Cortez in Mexico City. And what I found is that he is at a small, uh, otherwise unremarkable parish. He's buried uh, next to the altar, and there's a small plaque marking him, and it is forbidden to take photographs of his grave. The reason uh, is twofold. One is there is a general sentiment in Mexican nationalism that he is not a man to be honored, that he, uh, that he mm -hmm. brought Spanish dominion um, to, uh, to, to Mexico for 500 years, 300 years, 300 years, sorry. Uh, and uh, and uh, but the, but the other reason is, is practical. Um, there's a danger that Mexican nationalists, a perennial danger that Mexican nationalists will actually um, desecrate uh, the body uh, and ransack the grave. And so there's not an interest in popularizing it. That is to me, as an outsider, you know, I almost say as a non-Mexican. I am half Mexican, but uh, I'm I'm Texan first, American first. Uh, uh, that to me is the is the fundamental contradiction at the heart of Mexican nationalism. And, and I think, as an observer, it's the question that defines the tension within it in almost any age. To what extent uh, are they that nation of synthesis? And to what extent are they continually in this long-term rejection of the act of creation that brought them into being? Right now, they have a president uh, who prefers the latter. Um, and I suspect, on a sociocultural level, that uh, they will find their fulfillment in a credible figure who can do the former. And that's my last thought. Well, I think that's a perfect place to close it. Thank you, Josh, as always, for your incredible perspective and for your expertise. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Hard Country. We'll see you next time.